Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Decanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, indeed, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege of entering your presence today. You've heard our prayers, you've heard our praises, and now you speak to us through your word. May this indeed be your Holy Spirit speaking to your people. Deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distraction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you want something done right, do it yourself. You can finish that sentence, right? I should have asked you, how do you finish that sentence? If you want to do something right, if you want something done right, do it yourself. How often have you said that? How often have you thought that or lived it? Some of you grew up with that. You would be told to do things as a child or as a young person. You'd be told to do things without being told how to do things. And you would be pushed aside while a frustrated adult said, I'll just do it myself, get out of the way. Or there's a softer version of that, maybe a slightly more polite way of saying that. It's gonna take too long to explain it to you. I can get it done in half the time it takes to show you, I'll just take care of it myself. Now, depending on the task or depending on the situation, sometimes jobs just need to get done quickly and efficiently and they don't allow time for instruction. Instruction has to come later. But as a way of life, as a way of parenting, as a method of leadership, there are not many more ineffective methods than I don't have time to show you, I'll just do it myself because I don't trust you to do a good job. That's ineffective. That's not helpful. That doesn't build and train disciples. It doesn't train leaders. It's not only ineffective and unhelpful and unwise, but it's unbiblical. The Bible is full of examples of delegation of authority, delegation of duty, instruction and demonstration, inviting people to follow examples, and then once they're trained, turning them loose to go do what they're called to do. God creates man, and he gives him a task. He gives him authority and dominion and responsibility. He names him Adam, and he puts him in a garden, and he says, now this is yours. Now get to work. He creates a wife for him to love and to lead. God delegated tasks for Adam to undertake. Much later in Exodus, after the Red Sea crossing, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to see what 
the Lord is doing with the people of Israel. And Jethro comes and he finds Moses and sees that every day from morning till evening, Moses is doing nothing but sitting and hearing people's arguments and judging between their complaints and, and judging on the issues that people are bringing to him. This is a congregation of about two and a half million people who came out of Egypt. And Moses, one man, is listening to all of their arguments and complaints and judging between them. And Jethro says, this thing that you do, Moses, is not good. Both you and the people with you will surely wear yourselves out. It's not good for you, Moses. It's not good for the people. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. So in so many words, what Jethro says to Moses is, you teach them, Moses. You teach them the statutes and the laws, and you show them the way they must walk and the work they must do, Moses, but appoint rulers over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them take care of the day-to-day -day arguments and issues and details. Delegate, Moses, delegate authority. And of course, Moses did that. But Moses had a good heart. He really desired to serve the people and work hard to do everything they needed him to do and meet every one of their expectations. But Jethro recognized, that's not good for you and it's not good for them. In fact, you're wearing yourself out and you're doing the people a great disservice. If you've got a problem, you got to get in line to see Moses. And he's got a long line waiting to see him. No one else can take care of your situation. So any forward progress would most certainly grind to a halt. It's inefficient to live that way. It's inefficient to try to lead that way. Had they kept that up, had Jethro not shown up that day, Israel would still be somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula in the year 2020, and they'd still be there, and they wouldn't have moved. Many years later, Jesus comes, and he calls 12 men. And he develops close relationships with them and he teaches them and he demonstrates to them what kind of life what kind of work he wants them to do. And then he turns them loose. He, he lets them go out a little way and he brings them back and he instructs them some more. And then he sends out 70 disciples, not just the 12, but then sends out 70. And they have been instructed and trained and sent out to do the work. Jesus never said, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Jesus didn't say, I don't have time to show you. Jesus said the opposite of that in John 14. Jesus said, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. The ministry of the Lord Jesus was just about three and a half years. His entire ministry was spent, for the most part, between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. We're just about 80 miles apart. So Jesus spent a short time within a small radius of territory and, and the discipling and the working and the serving that he did there was training men who would then take that on and go on for their whole lifetimes and end up covering the whole world. So for the words of Jesus and the works and the miracles of Jesus were directed instruction for those to whom he would delegate the responsibility of moving the kingdom forward even to the ends of the earth as they train people who train others. So at the, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority 
in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus had delegated authority. Jesus had the delegated authority of the Father. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and passes that authority onto the church and says, now you go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The idea was never to have the apostles stay in one small place and hope that somehow the world would find them that the world would come to them, but to have the disciples go out trained with delegated authority to take the gospel with them to the ends of the earth. So the goal of delegation, the purpose of delegating responsibility is not to clone yourself. It's not to have someone go and do things exactly the way that you would do them all the time. But the the goal of delegation is to inspire others with the calling, the vision, the scope of the project, and then entrust them to carry out the responsibility and to carry out the critical parts of the mission that you've delegated to them. You want them to invest themselves in the work, to take ownership, and go and do things that you would never do, and go and do things you can never do, to do do greater works than these, as Jesus said. And this is true whether you're making disciples in the church, or showing a nine-year-old how to rake leaves, or showing a five-year-old how to fold dish towels, or teaching the new hire at work how to make sales calls. Successful institutions require faithful delegation, whether you're talking about families or churches or schools or businesses. Now, delegation has firm grounding in these examples from scripture, and it comes with a number of practical benefits. I'm going to give you three practical benefits of of delegation, and then we're going to look at how these work in Acts chapter 6. So one, one practical benefit is that for leaders, delegation frees up your time for you to exercise your gifts fully. There are things that only you can do. There are things that you are called to do, and there are many things that many people can do. It's, it's just what Jethro says. Uh, you are hurting the family. You're hurting the business. You're hurting the church if you expend all your resources doing what others can help you with, what others can do with you or for you in such a way that others can't exercise their gifts and you can't exercise yours. This is one of the most difficult things for me to learn as I've understood my role in the ministry. I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm above carrying garbage out. I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm above setting up tables and chairs or grilling at a picnic or, or you know, holding a baby or, or helping out. And what I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm above that because I'm not. I'm not above any of that. But there are many times in the life of the body where I need help with some of those things because there are other ways, unique ways that I'm needed. And, and you know the exact same thing. You have demands on you in your various relationships and your various spheres. There are times you need help so you can do what you're called to do, so you can do your best. But there's always a little pride there, isn't there? There's always this little, this little hint of martyrdom to show that, oh, I can do it all, or I can almost do it all, or I'm so busy, I'm so stressed, I'm so stretched out, and that's, that's not good. That's not good for you, it's not good for the people you're serving, and in fact, you're not doing what you're called to do if you don't delegate. So that's the first thing, delegation frees up time for you to exercise your gifts in full. The second thing is that delegation forces us to prioritize our tasks 
and helps us to know what needs to be done in what order and who can do what. Good delegation forces us to distinguish between our area of responsibility and our area of interest. There are some projects and there are some people that are very close. They're very near to the center of my responsibility of who I'm called to teach and minister to and serve. There are some projects and people outside of this body who I may have an interest in. There are projects outside of this body whom I may have an interest in, but they're outside of my responsibility. They're not in my sphere of responsibility. They're in my sphere of interest. And it's helpful to be able to delegate needs in the sphere of interest so that I can focus on my responsibilities. You, you as well. Delegation helps us make those distinctions. It helps us to discern between the urgent and the important. Those two things sound like synonyms, but they're not. Sometimes there are urgent things that are not important. Sometimes there are important duties, which are not urgent. Sometimes there are things which are both urgent and important. And there are things which are neither urgent or important, but they're not, they're not the same thing. So delegation helps us to make those calls. Is this important or is it simply urgent? And, and it helps us to hand off urgent but less important tasks to those who are ready and eager and trained to do the work while you focus on the important. So many pastors that I talk to, I ask how you're doing, and I get this response. They say something like, oh, I'm just putting out fires. I'm just running around putting out fires. When I was doing sales and service in the business world, uh, it, it was all just putting out fires. It was just running around putting out fires. And what we mean by that when we say that is we're just jumping from one urgent task to another urgent task without doing uh, anything to move our mission forward. We're not doing important things. Uh, bringing it back to the home, the pile of laundry or the dishes in the sink or the ringing phone might have a sense of urgency attached to them, but reading a book with the baby or singing with the toddler is important. And it takes wisdom to know which is which, what's important and what's just urgent. It's a, it's a Mary and Martha distinction, isn't it? Remember, uh, remember for Martha, supper was urgent, but for Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus was important. And those are two things that must be distinguished. And delegation helps you know the difference. Thirdly, and perhaps most critically, delegation creates and builds leaders. If you have a lot of responsibility today, it's because someone somewhere gave you a little bit of responsibility. That's why you have a lot, because you were faithful in small things. You had someone ask you to do some small thing that grew over time into a big thing as you succeeded and took initiative and developed. If you never delegate responsibility, you never create or inspire the next generation of leaders. When, when Moses took his father-in-law's advice and when he delegated those leaders over the people, he created a host of new leaders within Israel. We get to meet some of them later. Joshua and Caleb are, are heroes who get delegated authority from Moses. When Jesus delegated, he created 12, and then he created 70 leaders who would then go on and create and inspire many more disciples. We've all known the tragedy of the 20-something 
who moves out on their own for the first time and they don't know how to work the washing machine. Why don't they know how to work the washing machines? Because mom or dad never made them work the washing machine. They don't know what to do in the kitchen because it wasn't expected of them growing up. It was all, always done for them. And instead of actually helping them, this doing it for them actually hurts them because they're deprived of those skills. Delegating, even in small things, inspires and creates the next generation of capable leaders. We give work and we ask for help because we love you. Not because we're lazy, but because you need to know how to work. We need to be clear with that with our children and with each other. So all of these principles, everything that I just mentioned, all of it is present in Acts 6, where we have a similar situation to the one that Moses faced. The apostles are in a position of having more people to minister to than they can effectively attend to, and some of the most basic needs of the congregation are going unmet. If you start following the numbers from Acts chapter 1 forward and you total it up, there's something like 20,000 Christians by this point. By Acts chapter 6, there's something like 20,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Divide 20,000 Christians up by 12 apostles and you have one elder for every 1,700 people. Something's going to get left out. Somebody's going to fall through the cracks. Somebody is going to feel left out. Someone's going to feel like they aren't being taken care of and they aren't getting any attention. And that's exactly what happens. So Luke provides three reasons for the conflict that arises. First, there was a huge increase in the number of converts. And this influx of people brought with it certain practical problems. That's how this section starts. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. The multiplication of people uh, brought uh, attention and so that's the first problem. It's out of hand. We can't keep up with everybody. Secondly, the believers there in Jerusalem polarize around two groups. There are, there are the, the Hebrews and there are the Hellenists. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, both the Hebrews and the Hellenists, both of these groups are Jews. The Hebrews are the Palestinian Jews who, uh, who spoke Aramaic and they stayed and they lived around Jerusalem. They lived in, in that area, in Judea, Jerusalem, and, and, uh, and they stayed home. The Hellenists were those Greek-influenced Jews who'd moved away from this area, who adopted Greek culture, who would come back to Jerusalem for the big feasts. So these are those who came back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, were converted to trust in Jesus, and then stayed, and then hung around, and were part of the church in Jerusalem. So as you can imagine, there's going to be a high level of tension between these groups. There's the locals, the Hebrews, and the world travelers, the Hellenists. There's the strict traditionalists, the Hebrews, and the unconventionals, the Hellenists, the Greek-influenced Jews. Now this fault line between these two cultures causes an earthquake in the church over the problem of dealing with widows. You know, from earlier, from Ananias and Sapphira, from Barnabas, people were selling land and giving money to the church so that the church could care for the poor. And this was still going on. But when the distribution of the money was made, the Hellenists, the Greek Jews, were... were believing that their widows were being neglected. 
And they probably assumed that it was deliberate because there's all this tension between these two groups to begin with. They think it's deliberate. It might have been an oversight. But the source of the complaint comes from their suspicion grounded in this animosity. Now, Luke never implies, when Luke writes Acts, he never implies that the apostles were actually to blame for this oversight. He just mentions this was a source of conflict, this was the friction between the parties, and this is why we have a problem. So first, big influx of new people, and this influx, there's a division, and the two groups think that there's uh, uh, favoritism from the apostles in the distribution for the widows. Thirdly, there was the fact that the apostles had maxed out their ability, they had maxed out their capacity to tend to every detail of congregational life. The duties of the apostles and the expectations of the people upon them far outstretched their capacity as mortal men. And the fact that they could not attend to every issue and even could not attend to this issue very well and still do what was necessary for the life of the community was indication that something needed to change, something needed to be done. Now, the apostles understood our primary responsibility is in the area of worship and teaching, and that's how they respond. They say, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They said, God has ordained us for specific duties, prayer, ministry of the word, and, and teaching and administering and writing and preserving the gospel. This is, this is our work. And, and there are many other needs that many other men could, could really take care of. Now, the apostles are not saying, oh, this is beneath us taking care of widows and serving tables and sitting at the table of distribution and making sure that, that everyone got what they needed. Oh, that's just so beneath us. That, that's not what they're saying. Many of these guys, remember, had sunburned hides and calloused hands from, from a life as professional fishermen. These are not shirkers. These are not guys who are strangers to hard work. They're not trying to get out of work. But there were only a handful of people ordained to do what the apostles were ordained to do. And there were many capable people who could do the very honorable work of distributing food and money and clothing and funds to the widows. In fact, there were lots of people who needed to be doing that work. There were people who needed to be involved in ministry who needed to give their time. If the apostles were the only men who did everything, a whole lot of people would be deprived of the blessings that come when you work and serve in the church. The needs were mushrooming, and the apostles simply could not keep up with the increasing demands, and they needed help. Some people make a big deal out of this phrase, serving tables. It's not meant to be a disparaging term for the act of serving people in need. It's not as they're saying, oh, we're, we're not going to come out of the pastor's study to get down here and get our hands dirty serving widows. It's, it's not a disparaging term at all. It's vitally important. Serving widows is vitally important, but it's not the primary thing they were ordained to do. And so no one took it as an insult because you see in verse five, this saying pleased the whole multitude. You see, what they cared about was not that Peter went to see Aunt Bernice every Thursday morning, but that somebody went to see Aunt Bernice on Thursday morning. That's what they cared about. And they understood that 
that, that Peter could then focus the majority of his time and resources on leading the whole body. So the people said, this is a great idea. Let's get seven guys to oversee this ministry. Let's get more people actively involved in the machinery of ministry. Now, Luke, in writing Acts, he doesn't call them deacons here. He doesn't call these seven men deacons. And later on, some of them end up preaching and baptizing and working miracles. And you may say, that, that sounds more like apostolic work. That doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like diaconal work. But, but Luke does use the f- word diakonos, the word servant. He uses that word three times, uh, a couple times as a verb. And, and he uses that word three times in these six verses. So the word that we get deacon from is actually in this text. So it's pretty evident these guys are originally set apart to do the work that we would later recognize and call diaconal work, the work of deacons. And then some of them go on to do additional things. So I don't have any problem calling them deacons or recognizing them as deacons because here we see the first separation of different offices within the church, within the New Testament, the New Covenant Church. Let me take just a moment. If you are new to Presbyterian church government or you need a refresher, just a word about that. Where do we get elders and deacons and and how how do we see this? Well, in the Old Covenant, God ordained priests and he ordained Levites. They were all from the tribe of Levi, uh, but, the, but the priests were sons of Aaron. God ordained priests and Levites. The priests led worship, they ministered at the altar, and they taught God's law. That's what the priests did. Minister at the altar, lead worship, teach God's law, and then they designated, there was one high priest who represented the people before the face of God. He would go into the sanctuary and represent the people before God. So that was the priests. Then there were the Levites who cared for the service of the sanctuary. They uh, took care of construction and maintenance of the tabernacle and the temple. They collected the tithe. They guarded the sanctuary. They managed the choirs and the musicians in the temple area, and, and that, was, that was their duty. So you have priests and Levites. You come over to the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Paul gives instructions for two different offices in the church, uh, which, which line up with priests and Levites. We have elders and we have deacons. And then there's additional, uh, there's additional instructions separated out for the minister, the pastor, the, uh, wh- what we sometimes call the teaching elder. So he's an elder. So we have ruling elders who guide and shepherd the church in spiritual matters. And we have deacons who, like the Levites, who, like these men here in Acts 6, are set apart, who engage in the ministry of mercy, collecting and distributing the tithe, and managing the facilities of the church. It's all very practical, uh, necessary, God-honoring work. And to understand that in the church today, as we have elders, I am a teaching elder, and we have two other ruling elders in our congregation. After today, we're going to have six deacons. And we understand that these offices are given to serve the church in various capacities. We, we don't have, uh, the church is not a corporate ladder where you climb from congregant to deacon, to elder, to pastor, to guru, to grand poobah. I mean, we don't, have, we don't have a ladder that you climb. In fact, if you want to take that and flip it on its head, actually, uh, it's an inverted pyramid. The pastor and the elders and the deacons serve you. 
uh, as, uh, as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that's how, that's how leadership works in the church. Moses gave himself to the people. Jesus gave himself to his men. Uh, pastors and elders and deacons give themselves and they pour themselves out for you. So there's, there's no hint of worldly glory or ascending or getting promoted. That's not at all. And if that's your idea, uh, you need to correct that. You called me, you elected me, uh, you, you asked me to be your pastor. We have elected our elders. We have elected our deacons. You call them to be set apart to serve the body. And that's how these men in Acts chapter 6 are called to their office as well. Uh, so you see in verse 6, we get seven names, Stephen and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. They set them before the congregation pick these seven men, and they set them before the apostles. They say, these are the men that we want. These men have good reputation. These men are full of the Holy Spirit. These men have, have wisdom, and we want these men to be appointed over this business. Uh, they, they were not preachers. They, were not they weren't theologians. They were good men who could do the work that was about to be given them. The people chose the men, and then the apostles ordained them by the laying on of hands. Why were there seven? Seven men are called. Well, seven was the number of leaders in the Jewish synagogue, so maybe they were following that example or that model. Maybe it's as easy as one man for each day of the week. One man could sit at the distribution each day of the week and make sure everyone was taken care of. What I find interesting is that all seven men have Greek names. They all have Hellenistic names. What a wonderful way of addressing the concerns of the Greeks and the widows of the Greeks. The people chose seven men who were sure to be sensitive of the issues and be sure to cover all the needs of all the widows, but especially those who felt left out. So these are Greek men. They're not going to forget anybody. What a beautiful picture of unity and compromise and a way of addressing the need quickly and efficiently and getting back to the work as the Lord blesses with more growth and extension of influence. The Lord blesses this decision in verse seven. Then the word of God spread. I mean, it's already been spreading. They've already been growing, but then it just, it gets a boost of nitrous oxide and the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You delegate and now the church grows and has more influence and, and more, uh, uh, more success uh, in, in, in moving the kingdom forward. These, this wise decision to call these men to serve the church, it freed the apostles to exercise their gifts while the deacons could now exercise their gifts. It encouraged the prioritization of tasks. The deacons could take care of the urgent needs of the widows while the apostles took care of the important ministry of the word. And it created a new crop of leaders, Stephen and Philip, especially go on to have key roles to play in the early history of the church. Now today in our congregation, we have determined we need more hands to help. The Lord is adding to our number and with more people come more needs within the life of the body. I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of stuff gets done around here. And a lot of stuff that makes worship and events comfortable and, and makes things run smoothly, all of those things get done by someone. I haven't seen a, a banquet table just set itself up before. I haven't seen uh, hamburgers that grill themselves as we're about to eat and enjoy at the picnic this afternoon. You know, chairs don't just fly into formation. Uh, there are people who make things work, and there are people who make things run smoothly, and 
those things are ordinarily directed by and, 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 and managed by a, a deacon in our body. It's wise and it's biblical to delegate these things. More hands means a multiplication of talents and coverage as we're all freed to exercise our gifts and we can all prioritize efficiently. As we build leaders within the, within the diaconate now, there's a multiplication of gifts and talents so that so that we can have even more coverage and uh, we'll be able to do more. So you've set before us these men. You, just as uh, the church in Jerusalem did, you've set before us Patrick and Dave and Josh. You've set them before us. You've, you've nominated them. We examined them. You elected them. And now in just a few minutes, we're going to lay hands on them and pray for them just as the apostles did in Acts 6. So as we leave this, take this lesson with you. Number one, Whatever authority, whatever leadership you exercise in the world, learn to delegate. It's your duty to delegate. It's your duty to train others. And it's your duty to be able to focus on what you're called to do by delegating things that other people need to do. Learn to delegate. Secondly, accept and respect those to whom duty is delegated. I love you all. I count you all my friends, you know you can text me, you can call me, you can email me anytime. You can drop by and see me when I'm here. I, I love it. I want to see you. I want to hear from you. But sometimes you may get a call from a deacon. Sometimes you may get a call from an elder. And don't think, oh, that must mean Dwayne doesn't like me anymore. I'm getting a call from an elder or I'm getting a call from a deacon. No, that counts too. You know, when a deacon calls you, that, that counts too. And know that, know that indeed I'm available and I'm accessible. But as we in, uh, continue to be blessed, we're going to continue to delegate and give uh, men responsibility and tasks. So accept and respect those to whom duty is delegated. And then thirdly, put yourself in a position to receive delegated responsibility. Put yourself in a position to be raised up and to be trained up and to be discipled as needs grow and as the body continues to have more influence and as we continue to be blessed. Do this and, and God will be praised and God will be honored by our life and our work together. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for raising up men and thank you for bringing us uh, these men today who, uh, who the church has set apart and they've set before us. I ask you to fill them each with your Holy Spirit. Use each of their unique gifts and their callings in the body so that we can all be blessed. We can all be blessed by them and to, uh, and, and to expand our influence in this community uh, for the name of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.